Welcome to Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series produced by Annenberg doctoral student Gina Seibert and visiting scholar Sebastian Mort. Gina and Sebastian sit down with historian and scholar Ruth Ben-Ghiat to talk about the Trump administration and the resurgence of authoritarianism in the U.S. and abroad. Hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome to Media at Risk. I'm Gina Seiber, a doctoral student at the Annenberg School for Communication. And I'm Sebastian Mort, an associate professor of American Studies at Université de Lorraine in Metz, France, and a visiting researcher at the Center for Media at Risk. In this episode, we sat down with Ruth Ben-Ghiat for a conversation about Trump and the resurgence of authoritarianism in the contemporary era. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a full professor of Italian Studies and History at New York University, an award-winning historian, and a political commentator on fascism. She's currently a visiting scholar at the Annenberg School for Communication through the Center for Media at Risk. In part one of this episode, Professor Ben Ghiat discusses the state of U.S. democracy, the global rise of authoritarianism, and how Trump follows what she calls the authoritarian playbook. So to start with, um, how would you describe yourself as a scholar and where would you situate yourself within your own field and academia at large? I'm trained as a historian of modern Europe and my specialty uh, early on and still today is Italy and fascism. I'm also trained as a political and cultural historian uh, and I've done a lot of work on images and image propaganda. So my first book was called Fascist Modernities and it was about the collaboration of intellectuals and artists in social and cultural policy, including racism. And my second book is a study of fascist film propaganda, especially imperial propaganda for for the empire and in war. I grew up in California in a, a lovely town on the beach on the Pacific called Pacific Palisades, which was a place of exile for many people from Nazi Germany. And I heard about their stories. There were many famous intellectuals there. Uh, you know, Bertolt Breck was uh, in an adjacent town. Arnold Schoenberg, the composer. His son was my math teacher in high school. So I grew up uh, with no direct family experience of fascism or the war, but uh, hearing about this. And so I got interested in what it means to have to go into exile and the toll of dictatorship on on people and creative people. And so I was going to study uh, Nazi Germany and exiles uh, in graduate school. And then at the last minute, uh, one of my advisors said, why don't you do Italy? It lasted twice as long. And there's less, you know, less studied. It's not as studied. So I decided to do that. And indeed, it's a very interesting case study for today because it lasted over 20 years. So that's, that's, it's for, was from a personal childhood example that I got into this. More recently, I've been studying authoritarianism on a global scale, and I'm now writing a book called Strong Men, 
for Norton that will look at the strongman style of rule, propaganda, violence, corruption from Mussolini up to Donald Trump. What makes Trump an authoritarian leader or have these authoritarian qualities? And how did the sociopolitical context of contemporary U.S. society facilitate this rise of Trump? If we look in the history of the rise of authoritarian leaders, you can often have certain conditions in society. Uh, you can have a sense of politics as usual doesn't work anymore. Great polarization, which of course the authoritarian tries to make worse. You can have a sense of crisis, a sense of people being forgotten. So other kinds of figures can come up who are charismatic, who are um, in our propaganda classes semest this semester, we call them lying demagogues. Spone. And then people believe them. Even if they know inside that they're lying, they still believe them because they believe in them. So American society in 2016 uh, fit enough of these preconditions that Trump was able to come up and win. Not everyone sees Trump as an authoritarian, and it's been really interesting process to see how some people have come to accept that label. When I started writing about Trump in 2015, I was using that word immediately, and it was kind of the A word. It took a while for some of the networks. I, I remember the first time CNN, Cory Booker used the authoritarian word. Uh, we see this president who has, in my opinion, very authoritarian tendencies. And a lot of us uh, have had David Frum and Sarah Kenzior, and I, a few of us had been writing extensively using that word. And when I saw this on CNN, it was in the, the headline, the Chiron, I thought, okay, we've done something. We have moved into the public discourse this idea that Trump can be considered an authoritarian. Then the question is, what does that mean? So what I've tried to do is take my knowledge of authoritarianism, which I call the authoritarian playbook, and see how Trump has what he's done as correspondent. So everything from very early on, hate speech, trying to delegitimize the press and his political opponents, making uh, it very clear that he didn't respect the rule of law, uh, using threat, including his making his own body a weapon, saying he could shoot someone and not lose any followers. They say, I have the most loyal people, where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? That was a very efficient political communication from the authoritarian playbook, that you let people know that you are personally capable of violence or allied with violence and that you believe you're above the law. And that was in January 2016. So by the time the election came, Trump had already checked many of the boxes of the authoritarian style, and he wasn't even in office yet. So this is how, again, speaking for just what I've done, I was able to write an op-ed that predicted what he would do before he came into office and every six months did checkups and everything has come true, not because I'm a psychic, but because he really does fit this profile. So I believe that the way to understand him and make what he does legible, including his personality, he maps 100% onto authoritarian personalities. 
uh, is this. Other people have different paradigms to understand him, but this is mine. study that was uh, published in 2009 by uh, Mark Hetherington and Jonathan Whaler. The, the two authors focus on, on what they call the authoritarian disposition, and they argue that it has been embedded in a portion of the American electorate, and that um, decisions made by voters are determined by deeply held worldviews that reflect this disposition. So I would like to know how this factors in the authoritarian equation. One of the great uh, eye-opening lessons that we are learning every day because of Trump is that we are not as democratic a nation as we thought we were. Now, to certain groups of American society, this was always very clear. To people of color, especially African Americans who uh, lived in areas with the heritage of slavery and all of the voter suppression attempts, that's no news. But to the whole of society, um, I think that many people didn't realize, they didn't see in that light many of the GOP's tactics. And the more we come to know about how hard certain sectors of the GOP and their allies have worked to delegitimize the rule of law. Think about the sovereign sheriffs movement, which has been in the headlines recently. They believe that they can take their law into their own hands. They are sovereign sheriffs. And if we look at these indexes of things that in other countries would be very authoritarian, it's disturbing. Or during the campaign, the number of elected Republican officials who called for Hillary Clinton to be publicly executed. That's another index, that's another fact that you think, well, wait, if this were happening in, in Turkey, in Russia, we wouldn't be surprised, but it's happening in America. So, so there's a way of reading the history of, and this is just the elected officials, but they are, they are the people who sit in our institutions and make our laws. Even they are really not very pro-democratic. So this has been one aspect of realizing that we're a different country than we thought we were. And do you think that precisely because it's happening in the U.S., it's not being taken seriously or as seriously as it should? I, I think that the way that Trump is acting has forced a lot of allies to begin to look at the U.S. in a different way as well. Your original question focused on voters, though. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something that's happening um, all over the world, that there's, for the reasons that we talked about before, people feel uncertain. There's, there's the kind of truth decay. And this encourages people to want to depend on um, strong father figures or other kinds of charismatic authoritarians. And this is just a global trend in politics right now, and people can look back to the recession of 2008. They can look back in Europe. They look to the migrant crisis. There's always a reason, a contingent reason, but this is clearly a cultural shift that's going on, 
and America through Trump is integrated. I believe we need to see America in this kind of global perspective. And what I've tried to do as someone who is not trained in American history, one of the strengths I've had is to look at the states with the eyes of somebody who studies authoritarianism abroad and say, well, wait a minute. This person just called for Hillary Clinton to be shot by a firing squad. Is this America? Wait a minute, these people just had a float in their parade in their town and they had Hillary Clinton in a noose. And is this America? Well, yes, this is an, that's an example of, yes, it was America, it is America if you're a person of color. Now it's extending, so this is the kind of um, opposite of progression, right? It's extending in a kind of anti-democratic way to people of any color. And that's a sign of, they call it in political science, deconsolidation, when the norms of democracy are further deteriorating. We just had the second State of the Union pretty recently. Um, with that, we've marked the halfway point of Trump's presidency. What do you think we have learned from the administration and the dynamics between the political parties? And what does this tell us about the state of America's democracy in 2019? You said we're halfway through his presidency. We we one. hope yes. <laughs> it's, it's not one. because it's not at all out of the realm of possibility that he will win again. And um, this, w this will be scary to many listeners, but uh, Ivanka is being groomed for political office, very obviously. Trump is all about optics. He, he, he's a creature who believes that the visual is, is worth more than the real. And she's been placed into little positions of power, including at the G20, where he had to go to the bathroom all of a sudden, and so she sat at the table. Or... She may be uh, the next head of the World Bank, or she may be picking the next head of the World Bank. So we may have Ivanka 2024 if he does not end in some kind of disgrace. And if he it just, it's, it's not, they, these people construct dynasties. So all of that to, to say. I think um, the State of the Union address and the, quote, national emergency, it's very typical that... Trump would end up trying to militarize the border because this is what authoritarians do. We were talking in our seminar on propaganda about how Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propagandist, he said the, one of the biggest functions of propaganda, one of the things that gets it started, is to bring problems into people's field of vision, problematizing things that were not problematized before, and creating new slogans New, new concepts that then become mainstream discourse. So, quote, the southern border, I've tracked this very carefully. I've even asked linguists. I've checked congressional records. The phrase southern border was not much in use in the late 20th century, early 21st century, because the border was not a, a problem to that extent. Um, and all of a sudden, the media started parroting the Trump administration's language, 
of the southern border. And you have to be very careful when leaders start talking about borders, because in every case, it's, it leads to militarization, it leads to war. The migrant question, the immigrant question, is always linked to demographics and race. And Trump has made no uh, secret of his desire to kind of whiten America, um, to stop people of color from coming in. If you recall, he said that we should have immigration from places like Norway. So he, he and Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and all of these interests, they've been working for years to set up this kind of holistic plan that will allow America to, to, to reverse the demographic change that all Republicans are frightened of. The kind of 2030, 2040 will be a minority majority. And that they need to reverse. So, the, so one of the things that I try and do in my work is to look at the big picture. How is this connected? How is this border stuff connected to these demographic plans? Because if you connect those dots, you have a project. And the Trump project is this. So it's happening every day. We have children penned in. So you have you know, confinement of undesirables. You have certain things that authoritarians have always done. Some, some have done them in a much more brutal manner, some less. But these are things that they have always done, and this is where we're going. So the State of the Union checked the box and then you use a national emergency to get what you want because this is your top priority. But can't we take some comfort in, in the fact that overall institutions have played their role the way they should have? Um, the, I'm thinking of um, the new majority in, in the House or even the judiciary system, mm -hmm. um, which have operated as you know checks and balances to his power. Yes, yeah, so... So what I laid out before was the gloomy part. The, the very happy part, which uh, we happen to be speaking on a fateful day, the fact that there's a vote about whether to reverse Trump's you know, fake state of emergency is a sign that we are a democracy. The fact that it can be debated and that there's a kind of legislative process to oppose his imperious proclamation is very heartening because, believe me, in other places and times, you have no such rights. And the very fact that the midterm elections brought about this sweeping change and, and the amount of women who came to office uh, is the most visible sign, but there are many, many progressive men who came to office. This is a very heartening sign. How it's all going to end, I don't know. I also, I wish the media would... Um, cover a lot of the different kinds of pushback. There's a whole uh, legal resistance. They wouldn't use that word for it, but um, lawyers filing hundreds of suits to block the Trump administration at all levels of government, and these do not get covered by the media. And uh, all of the people who have changed their lives since Trump came to office who have left high-paying jobs to join nonprofits, who have started advocacy groups. Uh, the creator of House of Cards, Bo Willemson, he started a, a kind of mobilization network. Um, I think he still does it full-time, but he left his job. These stories need to be reported so people feel heartened because the first narrative I gave is a narrative that's, that's depressing, that's almost hopeless. <laughs> 
there's this other narrative, and we have to mediate between the two. Talking about the um, the resistance uh, and the, the response to the Trump administration, in an Atlantic Monthly article, you write that authoritarian leaders, quote, work from a different playbook, and so must those who intend to confront them, end of quote. So how can opponents to Trump use his playbook to counter him while at the same time preserving democracy and not getting tainted? In, in the process. You, using his playbook to counter him does not mean adopting his methods. It means being smart and understanding that the leader you have in front of you does not think the way that most leaders do. And using the weaknesses of those, like, for example, during the presidential campaign, there was one of these debates when there were a lot of Republican candidates still in the field. And Trump was hammered mercilessly by Megyn Kelly. And what happened? He crumbled. Because the secret of the strongman is he's incredibly weak and insecure, and he cannot stand to be confronted, especially by a woman. So she, she really hammered at him. He fell apart. And then there was a big debate about whether she had been too aggressive. And he had a hissy fit, and he refused to come to the next debate. He boycotted the next debate, even though it was in Iowa, which is very important. This was an opening. This told you everything you need to know about him. And had the press realized what kind of person this was and continued to hammer him as, you know, his tax returns, everything, he wouldn't be there today. It means knowing who these guys are and what their weak points are and using that against them. And also knowing that the more you acquiesce to them, the more they're going to bully you, that you have to confront them. And we've lost so many occasions to do this. Like, solidarity of the press is very important. When Trump tells a journalist to sit down, everybody has to stand up. Everyone. Now, okay, Fox News isn't going to do it, but three-quarters of them could do it. And you have to give him a direct show of confrontation, because we are in a democracy. We're not in Erdogan's Turkey, where I would not recommend this. And he, they have to see that they are outnumbered, that there's frontal resistance. So that's what I mean. Just a simple gesture of standing up or turning your back. People could do that, networks could do that, and it would have been a different outcome. Looking at um, this phenomenon from a more uh, global perspective, there has been a lot of conversations about a global rise in authoritarian rule in recent years. So what is your assessment of this trend? I think there's a phenomenon of enabling and contagion, almost. The, the, re the rise of Trump has hugely empowered um, others, like Bolsonaro, because the, in the United States it's been such an important funder of nations, such an important example. So there was, of course, already uh, a big trend in this direction, but you're going to see uh, more of it because Uh, Trump is destabilizing, and he's also encouraging by uh, kowtowing to any despot, seemingly, um, and making it very clear that he, he admires authoritarians. Today's news was the upcoming summit with North Korea, 
that Foreign Minister Lavrov said that he, you know, the U.S. asked him to advise them on North Korea. So he's, he's going. He's going to uh, Vietnam where it's taking place. This is deeply sad. Is this true? It could be, but the Russians feel that they can make those proclamations speaking once again for the United States. So this is a symptom that the authoritarian style of rule has, has gone to a new level because the United States is such a hinge. And when Lavrov uh, popped up in the Oval Office with only a Soviet photographer, I'm using the old word Soviet, a Russian photographer, game over. That picture will go down in the history of propaganda. It was a watershed that there was no American in the Oval Office. Uh, only the Russian images spoke from the Oval Office. This was so chilling. This is a partial focused answer to your question that um, the United States has always been the, the linchpin either in fighting authoritarianism. And now the biggest triumph of Putin a huge world event would be to turn the United States into an ally of autocracy. That's the big plan. And, and from the perspective of Trump, it's working. From the perspective of the American people, there's huge amounts of resistance, and we'll see what happens. But this is, this is very dire. focus on Trump and Putin in the U.S. news media, but what other leaders in political parties outside of Trump and Putin should the American public pay attention to right now? That's a good question. Within, I mean, Europe is really interesting. Just, that's way too, you know, vague, but there are a lot of interesting things happening in Europe from protests in Hungary against Orban to, to uh, protests in Poland also the, the kind of um, what's going on in Italy, uh, which is not good, the rise of fascism. Um, and this is one of the most interesting big stories that's it's, it's a little bit underreported, is the uh, links between right-wing Americans and the right in Europe. And, and Steve King, the representative of, I of Iowa, he's kind of in the outs right now, but he's been a very important liaison between the racist American right and Gert Wilders, the Dutch rightist, and there's a lot of, and Putin, and there's a lot of mentoring going on right now between older authoritarians who grew up under communism, like Orban and Putin. They have decades of knowledge of propaganda, of repression. They know what they're doing. They are mentoring younger rightists in Europe, like Salvini, Matteo Salvini, who unfortunately will probably be prime minister before too long, and Christian Kurz of Austria, who's only 31 years old and is supposed to be a centrist, but he, not too long ago, he made a declaration that there should be a, quote, axis of the willing of Hungary, Italy, and Austria, all Nazi collaborationist states. And this is not subtle. For an Austrian... That, to, to talk about an axis of the willing 
in, I believe it was in 2017, he said it, or 2018, but no, not before that, whenever he's been in office recently. So there's, this is, there's a mentoring going on where older autocrats are kind of, and it's part of this rehabilitation of fascisms, of authoritarianisms, and Putin's putting back up uh, statues of Stalin. So these are stories that are going on, and the links of the U.S. with the, this ongoing trend is, a, is very interesting. To, to finish, so you have studied the rise and fall of many authoritarian regimes. How does this end? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, as I said before, there are different outcomes. One is that we descend into a kind of soft authoritarianism, which would be highly contested. One is that I don't think the Mueller investigation is going to end with Trump leaving office. He'd have to be voted out. So another outcome is that what we saw in the midterms produces a very compact, charismatic, it must be someone who can beat Trump's at his own game in terms of charisma, in terms of exciting people. And then we have an outcome of a flip back to a Democratic president. But all of the things that Trump is doing in the past have not ended well. And this is why I think a good place to leave this is that America is a laboratory right now. Because you have a, a leader who has 100% the authoritarian personality, 100% inclination to have strongman rule, and 100% admiration of other strongmen, but he's leading the Amer America, American democracy. We are a large nation. We have a history of protest, of civil struggle, and civic, civic feeling. And so it's a laboratory for what can happen, for the collision between these two things. So all eyes should really be on America to see what, how this particular part of the authoritarian playbook will end. This was the first part of our conversation with Professor Ben-Ghiat on the rise of authoritarianism within the United States and around the world. Join us for part two, where we discuss Trump, the media, and propaganda. Here, we talk about the importance of public scholarship in the age of Trump and what news media can do to counter political intimidation as we enter the 2020 election season. This episode was produced by me, Gina Seibert, and Sebastian Mort, and edited by Aaron Shapiro. We'd like to thank Ruth Bengiat, Waldo Aguirre, and Emily Plowman. Barbie Zelzer is the director of the Center for Media at Risk. More information can be found at www.ascmediarisk.org.